0: This is episode 12 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, we feature a long-forgotten magician, Wyman the Wizard. And you'll want to stay tuned to the end of the episode so you can hear a special feature that has something to do with Wyman the Wizard. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I am your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 12 of the podcast. It is January of 2019, and I'm going to start the podcast off by saying that 2019 is starting off no better than 2018 ended, I'm afraid. Um, So I have bad news. Uh, My friend and mentor, Denny Haney, Uh, The Denny and Lee Magic Studio has passed away. Uh, I'm sure you've probably already heard the news. It's been all over Facebook, and quite a few people have uh, reached out and been talking about it and so forth. Um, I think I had mentioned previously that Denny had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and uh, he died in his sleep on January twenty second, 2019, uh, Denny was a dear friend, uh, and a dear friend to many. And so many people that have uh, been commenting and talking about Denny online, they all say the same thing: He was my friend. He was my mentor, and he really was. I mean, he was not. He you know he he ran a magic shop, yeah, but he wasn't your typical magic dealer. Denny didn't sell junk. He wouldn't sell knockoff products. He he really cared about magic. Um, I think some of my favorite times with Denny are just talking, just just talking magic, and you'd see his face light up when he would get into their, you know, just the intricacies of what made magic unique and special, and how to take a just an ordinary trick and really give it. Uh, A great presentation and a great spin and he just was a phenomenal um, he was a phenomenal performer he was a a great friend um, an honest magic dealer and um, wow what can you say I mean he's uh, he's already missed and he's only been gone a few days and I'm sure we'll be talking about Denny in the future here on the podcast. In fact, I know we will. I have a lot of Denny stories that uh, I'd like to share. Uh, for those of you that are interested uh, and you're in the Baltimore area or on the East Coast and you want to make it out to uh, pay your respects, there are viewings. The viewings will be held on uh, Thursday, January 31st, and Friday, February 1st at the Bruce, uh Sorry if I mispronounced this... The Bruzdinsky Funeral Home, which is on 1407 Old Eastern Avenue in Essex, Maryland. Uh, The hours of visitation will be between 3 and 5 p.m. and 7 and 9 p.m. on both days. Uh, There's also a GoFundMe page to help with the, uh, offset some of the funeral expenses, so, uh, Please, if you can uh, contribute to that, would really be appreciated. And uh, and check out the Denny and Lee Facebook page for more info and uh, and updates as well. So, uh, Denny, we uh, we miss you, my friend, and uh, may you rest in peace. So, episode twelve, we are talking about another forgotten magician. And what's so interesting about this is uh, many of the magic books and magic magazines that I was uh, looking for information on Wyman, um, they would preface it by saying, here's a forgotten magician. So even when these books and articles were written some 80 years ago and more, um, he was already forgotten back then. So uh, just imagine it. Here we are. 80 to 100 years from that time, and um, how much more he's forgotten. Wow. His name was John Wyman Jr. He was born in Albany, New York on January nineteenth, 1816. And just to give you a little bit of historical perspective, Thomas Jefferson was still alive when Wyman was born, and Abraham Lincoln was only seven years old. As a boy, Wyman uh, had an, had he had this natural ability to mimic things. Uh, it could be like he could create the sounds of uh, like a dog barking or a cat meowing, uh, which you know every school kid can do. But he could apparently do it to a, in a way that um, was beyond the your your normal abilities. And I guess he could do more than just you know birds and. Um, I'm sorry, not Cats and dogs He could do birds and other animals And people He could mimic the way uh, people spoke So I think what we would call that today We we would refer to that as an impressionist Kind of like the Rich Littles Or the Fred Travelinas uh, uh, There's two older performers But those are impressionists and that was an ability that he had. Uh, at a young age, he moved to Baltimore to work as a clerk in an auction house. And um, he continued his hijinks of mimicking, and, uh, and it really delighted his co-workers. And um, before long, word got around of how entertaining this uh, young man Wyman was. Well, uh, Dr. Charles Spaulding, who was the proprietor of the Baltimore Museum there in Baltimore... Hired Wyman to entertain, so Wyman put together a little show of uh, of his mimicry and, uh, and ventriloquism, and and I should mention, ventriloquism back then was not what you think of today, where you see the you know the mechanical puppet and that kind of thing. Ventriloquism back in that time period. It's called throwing your voice, but they don't really throw their voice. It's just they were able to manipulate their voice in a way. Like, for example, they could hold up a bottle and make it sound like there was a person speaking from inside the bottle. Or uh, they could make it sound like uh, someone was speaking from another room. In fact, one of the very popular things that they would do was carry on conversations with members of the audience, except they really weren't. It was them speaking and then them throwing their voice as the person from the audience. It reminds me of the act that Wayne Dobson used to do years ago on stage where he would have two spectators up and he would say something and then it would sound like one of the spectators was answering him back in a high-pitched voice and the other was speaking to him in a low-pitched voice. And it's that same kind of thing that um, that Wyman made popular during his day. And oddly enough, after coming up with this act of ventriloquism and mimicry, uh, it was so popular, he started to add magic. Now, unfortunately there's no record, at least that I've been able to find uh, of where Wyman learned magic or where he got his magic props. In fact, no less than John Mulholland even says the, the exact same thing. We don't know where he got his props. Um, but before long, he actually had a, uh, pretty large repertoire of magic and mysteries that he added to his show. Now, if you're wondering what kind of performer Wyman was, um, here's a couple, uh, examples. Houdini referred to Wyman as one of the most honest magicians who ever lived. And I'll explain that whole honesty thing a little bit later, uh, Here's some things he was not. He was not boisterous. He was not rough. He was not vulgar. Those are all positive things not to be. Uh, he was very funny, however. And, uh, and he was also known to, uh, to handle hecklers pretty firmly. And when I read that, I was like, wow. <laughs> there were hecklers way back in the 1800s. Fantastic. Wow. One of the reasons I became fascinated by uh, Wyman the Wizard is because he lived for a time in Washington, D.C., which is the area where I am. And he actually performed for several different presidents. He performed for Martin Van Buren. He performed for President Millard Fillmore and four times for Abraham Lincoln. Wyman lived on uh, 6th Street in Washington and his house is no longer there. I've checked. But uh, he regularly performed at a place called the Odd Fellows Hall, which was kind of uh, situated almost perfectly in the center between the area where the Capitol building was and the White House was. So um, if you had to journey from one building to the other, you were going to pass Odd Fellows Hall. And of course, a lot of uh, congressmen and political types were members of Odd Fellows Hall, so they would have known about Wyman from there. It appears that Wyman performed for Martin Van Buren early in Wyman's career. Uh, Van Buren was president. He was president from 1837 to 1841, and Wyman's first professional performance was 1836. So it would have been very early, probably 1837, 1838, when he performed for Martin Van Buren. Later, he when he performed for um, Millard Fillmore, Millard Fillmore was president from 1850 to 1853. So, And it's also in the 1850s when Wyman was represented by P.T. Barnum, the great showman. Now, going back to Millard, Millard Fillmore for a second, there's a wonderful illustration that I found of Wyman performing the inexhaustible bottle for... President Fillmore, and his cabinet. And there's in the center, you see um, Wyman holding up the bottle high in the air. And surrounding him are all these members of Fillmore's cabinet all holding up glasses. Wyman did not refer to that trick as the inexhaustible bottle. That's what most magicians know it as. Wyman's term for it was the bottle that cannot be emptied. And another way of thinking about it is it's an early version of the think-a-drink type of effect. So that was something that um, Wyman did for President Fillmore. Now, when we get to Abraham Lincoln, he performed for him for four different times. I don't know what he did all the time or in in, in each situation. But we do know of one particular instance, and that is when he used several pennies, and he placed them on the back of Abraham Lincoln's hand. And he took a little, uh, probably a little leather cover and covered them over. And the coins passed through Lincoln's hand. And the props for this, the pennies and the little cap, and this effect was called the cap and pence. Those props are now in the collection of David Copperfield in Las Vegas and those were used by Wyman the Wizard, and those very coins passed through Abraham Lincoln's hands. That's that's pretty cool. Now, I did read an article in The Sphinx by John Mulholland um, where he was talking about some of the old-time performers, and he talked about uh, Senor Blitz, for example, and he said Blitz was famous for doing small magic. And then he goes into the next paragraph, talks about Wyman the Wizard, and Wyman the Wizard also did small magic. And reading that, I realized... What they were referring to when they said small magic was a little different than what we might think of small magic today. If you said small magic today, you'd probably be thinking of close-up magic, card tricks and coin tricks and that kind of thing, or you know, even what they might term street magic. Um, but not, that was not the case for those performers. They were p- performing really stage magic or platform magic. Uh, just to give you an example of uh, a couple of the effects that, uh, that Wyman did. Of course, we know he did the inexhaustible bottle. He also did the uh, artist's portfolio that was made famous by Robert Houdin, where he had a, a large artist portfolio that uh, was flat, folded flat, and he would open it up. It would sit on like a little tripod, and he would open it up and reach inside and produce all sorts of objects, like uh, like a large um, bird cage, for example, and um, and and other things as well. But they all came out of this flat, you know, formerly flat portfolio. Uh, Wyman also had automaton in his show, and I'm not super clear on what all the automaton did, but I, I get the impression from what I've read is he used his ventriloquism along with the automaton. So here you had kind of a, if you think about it, modern day ventriloquism, you've got the, uh, the ventriloquist with his ventriloquist uh, figure uh, here's Wyman uh, back in the 1850s with automaton. He's not connected to them. They are, you know, wind up toys, basically, an elaborate wind up toy, and they're operating on their own, and he's causing them to speak um, using ventriloquism. So that's a really fascinating uh, way of um, incorporating your own talent into that of the automaton as well. Another popular effect in his show was something he called the famous crystal casket, which was a um, uh, a glass box that you could clearly see that was empty, and he would make an object appear, visibly appear, inside the crystal casket. Another feature of his program was he called it the gun feet. He actually purchased this from John Henry Anderson, the Great Wizard of the North, and this was the bullet-catching effect, and that was in his show as well. Fortunately for Wyman, he wasn't one of the casualties of the famous bullet-catching feat. Other effects from Wyman's show include the aerial suspension, which he also purchased from John Henry Anderson. This was actually a ripoff of Robert Houdin's aerial suspension. There was a small effect called the Little Bobby, which I have, uh, I've seen, I don't know, it wasn't Wyman's version, but um, I had seen this in Ken Klosterman's collection. It's a little figurine of a, a little, like, carved wooden figurine of a person, and it's got a little costume on, and you cover it over, and uh, and apparently the whole thing disappears, and uh, Ken actually showed it to me and, and um, fooled me with it, so... Pretty little, uh, cute little piece from the 19th century that uh, is still apparently strong today. Um, Wyman also had a spirit dial in his show, or a spirit clock. He had an effect called the gun and target. Um, The card sword was another feature of Wyman's show. The canister and birdcage. This is, uh, I see this popping up all the time. It was in Blitz's show and many other performer's show. It's a canister that you could apparently show empty. You produce a lot of things out of it, and then the last production is uh, is a cage with a bird in it. And, and of course, no magic show from that time period could be complete without the egg bag, which was also in Wyman's show. And probably the largest piece in his show was his Sphinx Head Illusion. This was a, uh, a table, a three-legged or four-legged table with a box that sat on top. And about the size of a bread box. And you'd open up the front door and you could see a head in there. And uh, typically it was called the Sphinx illusion because the head was dressed like the head of the Sphinx. And the eyes would open and it would begin to talk to people in the audience. It was a wonderful illusion and an early principle of illusion magic and like i said probably the largest thing in wyman's show now it seems that wyman may have been the first magician to perform mediumistic stunts as magic in his shows and quite possibly that means he was also one of the first if not the very first to expose spirit mediums now he did not do an exposé in his show he Performed like I said, he performed the mediumistic stunts as magic, not like like Houdini who exposed them later. But, uh, but, 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 but he was part of a committee in 1857 that investigated the Fox sisters, and in the uh, in the official record printed in the Boston Courier, he is listed among uh, several other professors. In fact, Wyman was actually billing himself back then as Professor Wyman. And I, it's possible that the Boston Courier mistook that for um, the fact he wasn't an actual professor. But, um, but if you think about it, you had two Harvard professors, and then you had Wyman and the Wizard um, investigating the Fox sisters. And um, of those three professors, one of them really was the most knowledgeable, and that was the magician of the bunch. And as it turned out, in the end, the, the sisters failed to win the $500 reward for genuine spirit mediumship. Uh, and I'm sure that you can thank none other than uh, Wyman for the knowledge needed to debunk the Fox sisters. One of the things many of the histories record about Wyman's uh, performances in his career was that he performed a gift show. Uh, gift shows were Uh, Well, they had a bad reputation because a lot of times people would advertise this is a a gift show. Everybody's receiving a gift if you come to the show. And then you would get junk. You'd get, you know, really crappy things. But Wyman was different than a lot of uh, entertainers of the time. He called his the Wyman's Gift Exhibition. And he actually gave out pretty decent items uh, for people that came. Now, everyone... Uh, got something. In fact, it says on a playbill, it says, each and every purchaser of a ticket receives an elegant present. And these include, or they could be, uh, dry goods, groceries, silverware, family bibles, casters, cake baskets, uh, butter dishes, goblets, mugs, spoons, forks, napkins, rings, uh, uh, work boxes, albums, Pen, knives, scissors, jewelry, etc. So these are just some examples of uh, the things that he would give out. But then he also had like the grand prizes. And these might be like a lady's gold watch valued at $40 or a silver hunting case watch. Um, large family Bibles, handsome table sets, elegant shawls. So he did have some very pricey items that he gave out as well. And I wondered, you know, how can he afford to give out all this stuff? Well, it it just so happens, I mean, he was charging early in his career. He was charging between $0.12 and $0.25 per ticket. Okay, so you're charging that kind of money. Where where do you have any money to survive? Well, his profit on that was $27.50 on average. So $27.50 back in in the 1800s equates to about $864 today. $864 today isn't bad money for a single performance. Um, you know, you know, it's not David Copperfield money. It's not trade show money. But I mean, it's it's pretty decent money. So if he's doing one-nighters at $864, uh, considering the fact that the, the average income is far, far below that, Um, He's making a lot of money. He can can invest it back into the show and actually have pretty decent gifts to give to people. And by the way, he wasn't always just charging 12 cents and 25 cents um, per ticket. Later in his career, he did a lot of shows. They were private shows at mansions for wealthy people. And these shows would be about 90 minutes in length. And he would charge... $250 a show, somewhere thereabouts. So even today, $250, it's not great money today, but this is $250 back in the 19th century. So $250 back then equates to about $3,853 today. All right? So you're doing a private show, 90-minute private show for almost $4,000 I'd say that's pretty good money, even today. It appears that Wyman was well-liked by his fellow performers of the time, with the exception of one individual, and that was Comparse Herman. And I don't know what the the rift was between the two, but apparently they did not get along. And uh, Wyman decided to take advantage of this by presenting a challenge to... Compars via the press. In the challenge, Wyman disputed the claims of Herman, who was going around saying he performed only original material. And Wyman offered the sum of $25,000 to the winner of a magical duel. Ten of his best tricks would be performed by Herman, and ten of Herman's best tricks would be performed by Wyman. And the challenge would be public, and the winner would get all the money plus all the box office receipts. And uh, unfortunately, Herman completely ignored Wyman's challenge, so it never happened. Throughout most of his life, Wyman lived in Philadelphia, with the exception of the short time he lived in Washington, D.C. After he retired, he retired to Burlington, New Jersey, actually bought quite a bit of property in Burlington, and the house that he purchased in Burlington, New Jersey is still standing today. Uh, While he was in Burlington, he met a, uh, a younger performer from the area, uh, the performer's name was W.H.H. Pugh, or he was known professionally as Professor Pugh. Um, the two became fast friends, and Wyman actually gave or sold, not sure which, uh, a number of his props to Professor Pugh. These included uh, the aerial suspension that he had Uh, acquired from John Henry Anderson, the little bobby that I mentioned earlier, the spirit clock, and a money belt that Wyman wore while on tour in Texas. These all became the property of Professor Pugh. This next piece comes from the August 1927 issue of The Sphinx. It's an article written by Frederick Eugene Powell. and In it, Powell says, in July of 1881, John Wyman walks out of the shop of Philadelphia magic dealer, Thomas Yost. And he says on his way out, you will not see me again. This is the last of Wyman. And several days later, on July 31st, Wyman dies. Oddly enough, Wyman was not ill at the time at all, but apparently had some sort of premonition that the end was near and clearly it was. John Wyman Jr. was only 65 years old when he died. He was buried in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Falls River, Massachusetts. And if you go to my blog about the dead conjurers, you can actually see a map to where the, uh, the actual gravesite is located. Some of the things that uh, contemporaries of Wyman had to say, one of them <clears throat> comes from magic history author, Henry Ridgely Evans. Uh, Evans actually found Wyman to be a very impressive performer. And he was also the very first magician that uh, Evans ever saw. And uh, this created a lifelong fascination with magic. And thus he wrote many, many magic books and magic history books. Uh, Wyman was the first American-born magician, uh, to do a full evening's performance. And Wyman also retired very, very wealthy. So he was one of the most successful magicians from a financial standpoint. One other note, Wyman wrote an autobiography, which was never published. The manuscript was apparently sent to George M. Cohen shortly after Wyman's death. But Cohen uh, claimed that he never received it, so... Uh, That means that the United States Postal Service was losing packages even back then. And just as a question to uh, my fellow magic historians out there, do you know if Wyman's autobiography ever turned up? Is it sitting in somebody's collection today? Is it sitting in the drawer of some famous collection, maybe Ricky Jay's collection or Copperfield or Klosterman or... George Daly, even Mike Caveney's collection. I mean, there are a lot of collectors out there, so I'm curious. Uh, Ray Ricard, do you have it sitting in your uh, among all your books? You live in that area. Come on, does somebody have it out there? Very curious. I would love to read the autobiography of Wyman the Wizard. So that's not it. That's not everything today. I promised you something else early on, a little tease, and here it is. Melbourne Christopher mentions in his book Panorama of Magic that there were at least two songs dedicated to Wyman the Wizard. And one of them is called Chemo, Chemo, Scottish, by James Balak, and according to the cover, was composed and dedicated to Wyman the Wizard. Just so happens that one of my readers from my blog, themagicdetective.com, is none other than magician and professor uh, Richard Wiseman. And Richard uh, saw this little notation in an article that I wrote and uh, was able to uh, find the sheet music online. I had a link on it in my article. He talked to a friend of his, musician Cameron Watt, And Cameron was kind enough to uh, recreate the music. And they sent uh, the uh, music to me via email. So that was a big surprise. And with their permission, I'm going to play that music to you now. So I hope you enjoy it. Listen close. and that's going to do it for episode 12 of the Magic Detective podcast. I want to thank you for listening and if you enjoyed the program today, please remember to like the uh, the podcast and uh, and please share it with others, please tell other people about the Magic Detective podcast. The more listeners I have, the better it is for everybody. And uh let's see. Oh, and I'll be back very soon with a uh, an episode about a much more current performer that I think you'll really enjoy. My name is Dean Carnegie. I'm the Magic Detective, and we'll see you next time on the Magic Detective Podcast.